Good morning, all. Monday, October 24, another day in paradise. Got a very special room today, Bill Browder, but we need no introduction. Before we start, as has become customary, um, just review this day in history. In uh, 1929, this was actually Black Thursday, 12 million shares were traded. In 1945, the United Nations is actually founded. And in 1648, the 80-years' war between Spain and the Netherlands came to an end. All right, those are the useless factoids for the day. We're going to dispense with any uh, market talk and get right into it. Uh, Bill has uh, agreed to spend an hour with us today, and I don't want to waste his time. It requires no introduction. Uh, however, um, well, it's the first time I've actually spoken with Bill. I feel a, a personal connection. It's completely fortuitous, but um, Bill's uncle, Bill's uncle, Bill Browder, was chairman of the Princeton Math Department um, when my father was at the Princeton Math Department, and they were best friends. Uh, Bill's father and Bill's two uncles were all mathematicians, as was my father. Uh, Bill uh, grew up in Chicago, went to Stanford, got an MBA. Um, his uh, parents actually lived in Princeton for a good while. His father was a professor at Rutgers, uh, previously at the University of Chicago. So there are a lot of connections. We also have a good mutual friend, a close mutual friend as well. So in any event, without any further um, ado, I want to get into it. Bill, really kind of you to spend time with us. Um, I know you're in high demand, and this is really a very special, um, very special day for us today. So welcome, Bill. It's great to be here. Thanks for thanks for inviting me, and uh, good to meet you. Since we share all these common touch points in our life, yeah, it's it's really 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 a small world. Um, so, in any event, um, Bill, uh, for those of you that um, have aren't that familiar with Bill, um, he's the author of at least two books that I know of: uh, Red Notice, which uh, came out a few years ago, which. Um, I mean, Bill, Tom, Tom Clancy didn't do a better job. Did you actually write that all yourself or did you have some help? No, no, I wrote, I wrote the book myself. I mean, but it, it took me like three times longer than it takes anyone else to write their books because I, I, I'm one of these people who um, I start reading books and I've got a really low threshold for boredom. And so I've got the stack of books that I've read 20, 25 pages of at home. And the moment a book gets boring, I just put it in my stack. And I said to myself, there's no way that I'm going to spend all this time writing a book and have someone do that to my book. And I just slaved over it, over both books, and just wrote and rewrote and had people read it and edit and come back to me and rewrite and so on and so forth, because I just couldn't face the idea that, that someone would start my book and not finish it. And, <laughs> and, and, I, and, I th and it was just absolute panic at the idea of spending all this time on something that no one was going to pay any attention to. And, and I think that that's why it's so readable because, you know, if you just put that, if you put that much time into, into a project um, and you just keep on refining and refining and refining, eventually you iron out all the rough edges. And, and that's what I succeeded in doing in, in both these books. And I'm not a natural writer. I never set out to be an author. I never, um, <clears throat> It was never my ambition at any point in my life to be a, uh, to write books. I, I I just had to because the stories were so important for f something far bigger than me, which was just showing 
the entire criminal enterprise of Vladimir Putin, which I, I thought the world didn't appreciate and the world had to know. And I needed to tell them and, and, and to share my story, which really makes it clear what, what's going on out there. Well, Bill, I, I, I just as, as a human being, I, I, uh, I salute you. I mean, aside from being incredibly enjoyable reads, I mean, it's truly staggering your, your story. When I said earlier, you know, Tom Clancy couldn't have done a better job. I, I mean it. I mean, it was like something out of Mission Impossible. So I don't know, maybe one day you'll sell the movie rights and give the money to charity or something. <laughs> but anyway, you, you, you've just come out with a new book, uh, Freezing Order, which I did read. Do you want to just say a word or two about your new book? Well, um, for, first of all, um, I, I, I thought that after writing my first book, Red Notice, that that would be one and done for all of those. I guess there's probably a lot of finance people on this call. Um, the, 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 the effort to out, output of a book writing is probably the lowest. You know, the, the, I mean, there's no economic reason to ever write a book. You don't ever. I mean, it's the worst money making thing in the world. And and um, and so after my first book, I said to myself, you know, I've done this book. Uh, people liked it. I got a lot of good feedback. It told the story. There was a really important sort of narrative arc. It was all about uh, me and then Sergei Magnitsky, my lawyer, and then eventually his murder and my my fight for justice afterwards. And it all fit nicely into a, a story in a book. And I thought, okay, that's it, finished. And then after the Magnitsky Act was passed, which was where the first book ended, the most unbelievable, shocking, horrible, and outrageous things happened. They, uh, the, the Russians killed um, Boris Nemtsov, who was a, a politician, a friend of mine, and somebody had worked with me on the Magnitsky Act. They tried to poison another close ally and friend of mine, Vladimir Karamorza, who was uh, Boris Nemtsov's protege, who helped me with the Magnitsky Act. They threw the Magnitsky lawyer um, who has been fighting for justice for the Magnitsky family off the roof of a five-story building. They tried to chase me all over the world, trying to arrest me, have me uh, extradited back to Russia. They sentenced me to 18 years in Russian prison. And, and then they got it. And then these, the Russians got involved in all this um, U S U S political process. And, and there's just so much stuff there that, you know, if, if I hadn't written the book, it would have just all been, you know, water under the stream, you know, water under the bridge. And that, that would have been the, it wouldn't have, nobody would have ever known about it. And so I really had to, to, I had to write the second book and each of these books took me like three years to write. I spent just wow. four hours a day for three years to write these books. And wow. Wow. So Bill, um, honestly, I mean, I mean, reading the book, I, I couldn't put it down. It, it, just a thriller. Um, maybe, a, by the way, you know, we were going to start out. You and I talked about this briefly before. A good place to start because because the opening passage of um, your new book, um, you prominently mentioned mentioned Twitter in there. Could you please explain for everybody what, just one of the reasons why you're such a huge Twitter fan? Oh yeah, well, so I, I um, the opening uh, the opening chapter is about an, a situation in Madrid. I had been in, in May of 2018. I had been invited to Madrid by the chief anti-corruption prosecutor of Spain, a guy named Jose Grinda. And he invited me to come to Madrid because we had filed a criminal complaint saying that we had found a bunch of money connected to the lawyer of, connected to the murder of my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, coming to Spain. And, and this, this, all this money had been used to buy luxury property there. 
we found the, the money flows, we found the property, and we filed a criminal complaint with the prosecutor. And he invites me to come to Madrid. And, um, and I have to do this as part of a formal exercise. So he, he can't open the criminal case until I've given like my sworn statement in his presence. So I make an appointment to go and see him. I fly to Madrid. I check into this um, hotel, the Grand Hotel in Glez in, in, in this old town in Madrid. And so I go to this hotel. Uh, the, the, the manager, I guess it was pretty, pretty um, uh, uh, not busy time. And so they gave me this unbelievable upgrade. They upgraded me to the best room in the hotel, the presidential suite. Uh, he was the manager was like so gracious and happy that he, he had upgraded me and wanted my approval. And I was very happy to be there. And so I'm staying in this ridiculous suite with like four different rooms and all this stuff. Um, for the night before my meeting with the um, prosecutor. Anyways, the next morning I go down to, I, I, to have my breakfast. And I open up the door. And there's the same manager who gave me the gave me this huge upgrade in just about to knock on my door, and standing behind him are two um, uniformed uh, Spanish police officers. And the the manager very meekly says, "You know, um, Mr. Browder, can you please uh, give these gentlemen your identification? They have asked for your ID." I hand one of them my passport, and he compares it to a clipboard he's got, and he says, uh, "You're under arrest." And I said, what for? Interpol, Russia. Now, at this point, the, um, the manager of the hotel starts to panic, not because he's worried about me, but he's given me this huge upgrade, and he doesn't know how long his like, suite will be out of use for if I'm, all my stuff is stuck there while I'm in this limbo of arrest. And so he quickly intervenes with the, um, uh, the, the um, police officers and says, uh, you know, is, can you just let him pack his stuff? And they reluctantly say yes. So then I go into the, um, uh, I, 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 since I have all these different rooms, I go into one of the rooms where I can't be seen. I call my wife. She's not picking up the phone. Um, I call the lawyer, the Spanish lawyer who had arranged the meeting. He's not picking up the phone. And so at this point, not really knowing what else to do, I, at this, I had started using Twitter a few years before. I had about 100,000 followers, a lot of journalists and politicians. And so I tweeted, urgent being arrested in Madrid, Spain right now on a Russian warrant, not sure where they're taking me. I said, I press send. I, I put together my bags. I go down with the police officers. They shove me in the back of the police car. And, and I'm sitting in the back of this police car and you can't roll down the windows. <clears throat> um, you can't open the doors. There's thick plexiglass between me and them. And I had this terrible uh, thought going through my head, which is, what if these guys aren't actually police officers? I mean, how hard would it be to, to buy a uniform and steal a police car? Maybe these guys are Russian kidnappers. And um, and I thought, wait a second. Well, if they are, what if people haven't really believed that I'm being, you know, taken? And um, and and interestingly, and to add to this, or my paranoia was the fact that these guys hadn't frisked me or taken away my my phone. Um, and so I was, you know, adrenaline was pumping through my veins. I was thinking all these terrible thoughts. And I, th and I thought, well, I, I need to like get another tweet out. And since they hadn't taken away my phone, I surreptitiously brought it up and took a picture of the back of their heads um, with the plexiglass. And then beyond that is all the paraphernalia of this police car. And, and, uh, and I pressed send. And at that point, anybody who had been doubting whether I'd been arrested or not, now was no longer doubting. And, and 
and my phone was on silent, but I started getting all these news alerts from, uh, uh, you know, New York Times and Financial Times, Bill Browder arrested in Madrid, Spain right now. Anyway, so at, at this point, um, and it's on silent, and then, and then I see my lawyer is finally calling, and he's the one person I wanted to speak to. And so I kind of dip my head down below the seats to try to take the call. And at this point, the cops see that I'm, I'm on the phone. They screech the car over, pull over, uh, pull me out, take away my phone. They say, no telephone. I say, lawyer, no lawyer. And um, at this point, we keep on going. And then they take me to this nondescript office building in some strange square in Madrid, no, no flags or police insignia. And they pull me out of the car. I say, what are we doing here? Medical exam. <laughs> and I, uh, uh, I'm like, I'm just picturing now these guys, kidnappers, taking me into some building, holding me down. Someone injects something into me. And the next thing I, I find out, I'm, I wake up in a Russian prison. And I say, no medical exam. And I'm, I'm ready to like, you know, fight or flight. And we're, we have this standoff for a little while. One of them is making a frantic call to somebody. And they eventually push me back into the um, police car and off we go again. And we eventually arrive at a red brick building with the Spanish flag and the EU flag and a police insignia. And for, uh, for a few moments, I was actually totally relieved that I'm being arrested and not kidnapped. And uh, at, the, at which point they take me into the police station. The police are, are, um, are like thinking that this is the best thing that's ever happened to them. They've caught an inter in this little police station in Madrid. They've caught an international fugitive wanted by Interpol. They, uh, everyone's sort of popping their head into the, um, into the area where they're holding me to kind of get a good look at me. It's like they've caught the Carlos, the jackal. And, um, I'm sitting there and, and, um, and about an hour and a half goes by and all of a sudden I could feel the, uh, the sort of mood of the whole police station change. And then a few minutes later, the, um, chief of police accompanied by a translator comes to me and says, uh, uh, Mr. Browder, we've just been on the phone to Interpol. Um, they've they've instructed us the warrant's not valid. You're free to go. And so, basically, if I had if I hadn't been on Twitter, tweeting this thing, you know, the 50 or so journalists that called up Interpol and the 50 more that called the Spanish Interior Ministry and and so on and so forth, um, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 none of this would have happened. I, I would have my lawyer would have like made an application to the Spanish police and. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'd spent 45 days waiting for the extradition notice and blah, blah, blah. And, and six months later, I'd still be in a Spanish jail. And so instead, I put it on Twitter. It saved me all that trouble and got me out of jail in two hours. So wow. <laughs> saved, saved my life. That's one of the, if you want to become a, be a spokesperson for Twitter, that's one of the best stories I've ever heard. That's, 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 that's awesome. That's awesome. So, Bill, um, just a little bit. Um, how did you wind up becoming, I remember, I remember um, uh, my father telling you, and then it was in your book, whereas your grandfather was the biggest communist in America, you wanted to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And I believe your grandfather was what, head of the American Communist Party from 1932 to 45 or something like that. Could you talk a little bit about your your grandfather, and then how it influenced you. Um, I remember from the book, it's been a number of years since I read it, but you wandered off, I think, to London and were working for a consulting firm and then Solomon Brothers, and then you wander around Marmance bidding on R Russian trawlers for pennies in the dollar. Just talk a little bit about what motivated you to get to choose this, uh, to choose this career. How did you get into it? 
So as, as you mentioned, my grandfather, Earl Browder, was the general secretary of the American Communist Party from 1932 to 1945. He actually ran for president against Roosevelt in 1936 and 1940. Uh, he was kicked out of the Communist Party in 1945 for being too much of a capitalist and then persecuted viciously during the 1950s for being a communist. And so this was my family legacy. Uh, I was born in 1964. I'm 58 years old. Um, but when I was going through my teenage rebellion, um, I was trying to figure out a great way to rebel from this family of communists. And, and um, I, um, uh, you can't see me, but I, I, I don't have much hair on my head. But back, back then, I grew my hair long and grew into an afro. But strangely, that didn't upset my family. I followed the Grateful Dead around the country for a couple of months, and that didn't upset my family. But then I came up with a perfect way of upsetting my family, which was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. And that very much upset my family. So I became a capitalist. I went to Stanford Business School and I graduated business school in 1989, which was a very auspicious year because 1989 was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And as I was trying to figure out what to do with my life after business school, I had an epiphany one day, which is that if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America, uh, and the Berlin Wall has just come down. I'm going to be, become the biggest cap. I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And so that's what I set out to do. Um, I couldn't quite get to Eastern Europe, so I moved to London um, and uh, had a couple different jobs. But my the, the job that kind of defined me was working at Solomon Brothers, the uh, no longer existent firm that um, was the famous firm in Liars Poker and and various other stories about Wall Street. And my very first assignment at Solomon Brothers was to advise on a um, privatization of the Murmansk trawler fleet, which is a, a fishing fleet located uh, in Murmansk, which is a couple, a couple hundred miles north of the Arctic Circle. And so I um, get on a plane to Murmansk. <clears throat> the head of the fishing fleet meets me at the airport. They, um, <clears throat> he drives me down to the docks. And we just, he, he says, before we, we have any meetings, I just want to see one, I want you to see one of our trawlers. So he shows me this ship and it's a 400, maybe 500 feet long, enormous vessel on the top deck. There have all the nets where they catch the fish and then below deck, they then separate out the fish. And then below that, they like treat the fish. And then below that, they, they uh, have canning machines where they can the fish. And so it's like a fully integrated ocean going factory. And it was pretty impressive. And I said, well, how much does one of these things cost? He said, $20 million new. How many do you have in your fleet? A hundred. So I multiply 20 million times a hundred. That gets you to $2 billion worth of ships. And I didn't know anything about fishing or shipping at this point in time. I didn't know anything about anything really. But I, um, I so I said, well, what's the average age of your fleet? He said, seven years. Without any better knowledge, I figured, well, that makes probably makes it half depreciated, which is probably not not anywhere near that, but half depreciated, so a billion dollars worth of ships. And um, and I, I was been I've been hired to advise um, advise the management on whether to exercise their legitimate right under the privatization program of Russia um, uh, <clears throat> to buy fifty one percent of the fleet. And I said, at what price is, is, are they selling 51% of the fleet, the government, to you? And he said, $2.5 million. So 
So there's a billion dollars of the ships and they can buy 51% for two and a half million dollars. You don't have to be a Stanford MBA or some type of rocket scientist to understand that that's just absurd. And it got me thinking, I was like thinking to myself, well, okay, if they're doing this in the fishing industry, they're probably doing this in the oil industry and some other stuff. And so I, um, I, I started to, I, instead of going back to London, I went, um, I went from romance to Moscow and I figured out that, that in fact it was going on everywhere. The Russian government had, had gone this, had come up with this idea, which was um, to go from communism to capitalism. Let's just make everybody capitalists. The best way to do that is to give them all the state property away for free. And, um, and on the back of that, I said to myself, well, what am I doing at Solomon brothers? And so I ended up, uh, I should be doing this for myself. And so I set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund. And I moved to Moscow uh, full-time in 1986. And I um, started investing. And I raised a bunch of capital from a few big Western investors, started investing. And, and it was as cheap as I thought it would be and really started to you know, go crazy in valuation uh, going up. But I also discovered in this process that these... Um, these guys, the oligarchs, um, were basically stealing everything that they could from everybody, and so it wasn't just um, uh, it wasn't just a one way ride to riches because at every step of the way, everybody wanted to take away the money that I might have made or could make or had made, and so I started having these fights with the oligarchs, and these fights with the oligarchs um, uh, ended up. Uh, where I was doing these naming and shaming campaigns, I would, I would uh, uh, research how these people were doing the stealing, and then share my research with these um, with the international media. And um, for a while, it worked until uh, November of two thousand five. I was um, uh, coming back uh, to Russia from a business trip abroad, and I was detained for fifteen hours, expelled from the country, and declared a threat to national security. Wow. Bill, I recall uh, one story, again, it's been a number of years since I read the book, but um, one of the stories that sticks in my mind, it was, I believe it was an oil company, energy company. You had bought a stake in, significant yeah. stake, for, for pennies in the dollar. It was some ridiculous thing, like they had the reserves of size Exxon or whatever the hell it was, and it was for a fraction of the cost. And they went and they did one of these things, they just erased your name or did some bogus rights issue for pennies in the dollar. You got the looted to smithereens. I mean, when they realized that you were... Um, what you were up to was it sort of like an organized uh, uh, campaign to um, you know keep you out of uh, to, to keep you out? I mean, as an outsider, I'm always a big believer when I when I invest abroad. You know, when in Rome, do 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 as, do as the Romans, and when you're on the outside looking in, it's always very difficult. And so, when did you realize that there was going to be a problem? Well, it's interesting because um, at first, when I started doing this. Um, uh, it was, uh, there was nobody, um, so th these oligarchs were doing all this nastiness and, and then Putin came to power. So I started, I started um, fighting the oligarchs around 1998. And then I, and then in 1999, Putin showed up as the prime minister and became president in year 2000. And he had this alignment of interest with me. <laughs> the oligarchs, when he, when he, when he was first elected, he wasn't this, this sort of all-powerful, all-evil guy he is today, he was kind of a bit sort of, um, I don't know, I, I guess uh, weak. 
the oligarchs had stolen a lot of the power that he had had, that the presidency should have, they had informally taken it away. And so I've never met Vladimir Putin, but we had this alignment of interests uh, where the oligarchs were stealing power from him at the same time as they were stealing money from me. Bill, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt, I have to laugh. When you say alignment of interests, I'm used to hearing that term in the context of, you know, partnership documents. Oh, it's a general party of an alignment of interest to investors. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, so, I mean, but this was the thing. And so, and it got really interesting. So, so I, I, he, he was, there's this expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And he, um, you know, he was fighting with these guys. I was fighting with these guys. And so every time I would publicize one of these scandals, he would step in and Gazprom, the national, the national savings bank, spare bank at the national electricity company, he would step in and do something. He would issue, he would like issue a presidential decree or vote this, the, the government's shares, uh, alongside me or various things. And as a result of this, um, the valuation of my portfolio went up dramatically. And, um, I thought this was the best thing in the world. I mean, this, this, uh, you know, I was stamping out corruption, making money for my clients and myself hand over fist, um, making Russia a better place. It was all pretty, pretty great. And, um, I, I was sort of hoping this, this would, would go on forever. And, and I, I tell you what's interesting is that, you know, everyone said to me, well, well, you know, aren't, aren't you worried about, um, uh, getting killed. And of course I was very worried about getting killed because I was going against all these bad guys who were stealing all this money. But I had this one thing going for me, which, which um, I didn't um, correct anyone about this misconception, which is that in Russia, nobody believes that anything is as it seems on the surface. So they see some guy, Bill Browder from the South side of Chicago. And they, and they say, um, there's no way that this guy, this nobody who's from America, just shows up here and does this on his own volition. That's just like impossible. Couldn't happen. Because there's always a conspiracy. There's always somebody, somebody behind somebody behind somebody. And so they looked at me and said, well, well what, where's, where's, what's the conspiracy here? And they saw I would expose something and then Putin would step in to stamp it out. They thought, huh, that... that that Vladimir Putin is a real clever bastard for like coming up with this, uh, with this Bill Browder guy to do all his dirty work for him. And so for a long time, people believed, the oligarchs believed that I was some kind of Putin project. And, and I wasn't going to disabuse them of that notion because, um, you know, they're not going to go and kill Vladimir Putin's guy. And, and that's one of the things that, that um, for a while, you know, kept me safe. But as it turns out, Putin wasn't doing this because he wanted to make Russia a better country and a more honest place or whatever. Putin was doing this because he was fighting with the oligarchs and he decided that he was going to win his war with the oligarchs by arresting the richest oligarch in Russia. Uh, uh, a guy named Mikhail Hordakovsky was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. And so he arrests Hordakovsky off his private jet in Siberia. Um, his secret police, Putin's secret police bring him back bring Hordakovsky back to Moscow. They put him on trial for tax evasion. And in Russia, when you're on trial, um, <clears throat> there is a 99.7% conviction rate. And so there's no presumption of innocence. And so they pretty much assume that you're going to be convicted. And therefore, they put you in a cage at the beginning of the trial because that's where you're going to end up being at the end of the trial. 
So they put Hordakovsky on trial, put him in a cage, and they allow the television cameras to come into the courtroom and film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. Now imagine you're the 17th richest oligarch in Russia. Um, you have your yacht. It's parked off the Hotel du Cap in Antibes, France. You've just finished up with your mistress in the bedroom. You wander out to the living room. You flick on uh, CNN. And there you see a guy far richer, far smarter, and far more powerful than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction? You don't want to sit in that cage yourself. And so one by one by one, uh, the oligarchs um, went back to Putin after he had sentenced Tordakovsky to 10 years in prison. And they said, uh, Vladimir, what do we have to do so we don't sit in a cage? And Putin said, real simple, 50%. Not 50% for the Russian government or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia, but 50% for Vladimir Putin. And at that moment, Putin became the richest man in the world. And at that moment, our interests were no longer aligned. Yeah, and, Bill, uh, yeah, Bill you, I, I recall seeing in one of your recent interviews, you estimated, I mean, actually not precision, that order of magnitude, Putin et al. have, what, gone off of, what, maybe hundreds of billions, if not a trillion dollars? Is that, is that your best guess? So I, I believe that Vladimir Putin and the thousand or so people around him over a 22-year period have stolen a trillion dollars from the Russian state. Okay, so now that leads, let's let's bring this now to current events. Um, we've got we only have you for an hour, so I want to move along. We could just talk all day, frankly. Let's move to current events, though, because um, you've been. I saw, and again, I urge everyone to uh, go on YouTube. Bill's been in the press quite a bit. Let's talk about Putin's motivation for what he's doing now. Um, I think you'd spoken about how. You know, it's all about himself and he's, he's lost the popularity and so on and so forth. So talk about what is his motivation now as you see it? Um, and if you put yourself in his position, trying to think like him, what do you think he's after? And then the most difficult question, if you could wave a magic wand and you were sort of in charge of grand strategy for the West, what would you do? So, so let, let's let's t- let's carry on with this thread. He's He's stolen a trillion dollars, he and the people around him. And what was that money supposed to be used for? That money was supposed to be used for um, hospitals and schools and roads and public services. And what was it used for? It was used for yachts, private jets, villas, bank accounts, investments abroad, etc. Now, you can do that for a year, three years or five years as a dictator with smaller amounts of money and possibly you know, get away with it. But a trillion dollars over a 22 year period, eventually people are going to snap. I mean, it's like a total pressure cooker situation. You just can't steal everything from everybody and have them live desperate, impoverished lives and expect that someday they're not going to want to get rid of you, get you out of power. And for Putin, get being out of power is, is much more dramatic than Boris Johnson or George Bush or, you know, something like that, where, you know, you go to the lecture circuit or you could set up a presidential library. Now, Putin is out of power. He um, loses his, well, first of all, he, he loses his freedom. He goes to jail. He loses his money and he probably dies. And so you can't be Vladimir Putin and ever have a dignified exit. You have to stay in power until the last day of your life. Now, 
so Putin is sitting there watching this whole thing and saying, I don't know when these people are going to come for me, but I know they're going to come for me because that's what happens in these types of situations when, you know, I've stolen too much money for them not to come for me. And therefore, I've got to do something to make sure they don't come for me. So what does it do? What does a person in Putin's situation do if they, he, he doesn't want to just wait for, you know, fate to take him away? And it's very simple. He, he pulls out the dictator's playbook, Machiavelli 101. If, if you haven't read the Machiavelli, the prince, read it because it's, this, is, <laughs> this is what it's all about here. And uh, you, you, you find a foreign enemy and you start a war. That's what Putin did. That's what you do in a situation like this if you're a dictator afraid of your own people rising up. So Putin started a war in Ukraine. And I should point out that there is no beef between the Russians and the Ukrainians. They're, they're, I mean, there is no fundamental issue. It's all this nonsense about, about them being Nazis and fascists and so on. You know, Ukraine has got a Jewish president. And, and it's also not about any of the stuff that Putin has said publicly it's about. It's not about NATO. It's not about um, creating a greater Russian empire. This is very simply about a guy who's stolen a boatload of money and now he's afraid that that um, the people are going to come for him because he did that. And and this is really important. It's a hugely important um, insight because if if I'm correct in my analysis, people people always ask me, well, what's the end game of this war? There is there is no end game of this war other than being at war. If if this is the correct analysis, it's not like you can. You know, Elon Musk says, oh, yeah, let, let's just give them back the four territories, let's give the Russians the four territories in, in Crimea and declare Ukraine neutral and call it a day. That's just like naive in the extreme um, because it's not like Putin, he, he needs to be at war. It's not like giving him something means that he stops. And, and if that is the case, then it means that no negotiation will succeed. And if no negotiation will succeed, then it means there's only one of two outcomes here. Either the Russians win or the Ukrainians win. And by the way, if the Russians win, what happens? Well, then they move on to the next country. And that may very well be a country like Estonia or Poland, which are treaty partners with us in NATO. And if those countries are attacked, then we're in the, facing this terrible situation where we're all, you know, our domestic media is going to be saying, should we or shouldn't we honor our treaty obligations? And if we don't honor our treaty obligations, then we end up in a situation where it's World War II all over again, where like, you know, uh, Putin gets this, we take that, and everybody, it's every man for himself. And we absolutely don't want to ever be in that situation. And therefore, the only reasonable outcome for us is a total Ukrainian victory over Russia. And if that is our objective, then we're not coming, coming to your question, what would I do if I was like king of the world? I would give the Russians, I mean, I would, I'm something the Russians, I'd give the Ukrainians every possible military tool they ask for to defeat the Russians. And we, we're in a moment right now when, when we haven't done that. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we're withholding. We're sort of scared to give them, we've given enough to, to not lose, but we haven't given them enough to win. And I think that, that, we're eventually going to get there, but there's also a huge risk right now 
in the United States and in other countries of people getting fatigued by the whole thing and saying, why do we need to support Ukraine? You know, we have our own problems at home. Not understanding that it's unbelievably de minimis expense, whatever we're paying right now, compared to what we'd have to pay if we're actually in a direct conflict with Russia, which is a very real high probability outcome if, if Putin succeeds for it in Ukraine. So, Bill, um, you mentioned, I saw the other day, um, I think it was yesterday, uh, there was some uh, noise about the Russians possibly using dirty weapons, and you were describing how they often will engage in false flag operations. They'll 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 claim the other guy does it, and they'll do exactly then what they claim the other guy was was doing. So, if if we go down this road that you're suggesting, where you know we have to carry on, and let's say the Ukrainians start winning, given that Putin's a cornered animal. Um, and again, you don't know him, but what you know of him, and, and I understand that he doesn't live by the same moral uh, code that you and I do, most of us do. Um, could you, do you think he's actually conceivable that they may use some um, small tactical nuclear weapons? I think absolutely it's within his power to do anything and everything if, if he sees it um, being to his advantage. There's nothing, he, he has, he's a, He's a very verifiable psychopath. He has no empathy, no sense of conscience, no sense of responsibility. He's just worried about his own survival and his own situation at the expense of everybody in the world and in his own country. And so he'll do anything and everything. But that doesn't, that, that, just because he is that does, should be not an argument to try to appease this man because he's unappeasable. And so we're, we're just stuck. We are stuck with this guy who um, has started a war in which we're all involved in one way or another. Right. And as, me, and as go on. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. And as, as awful as it is, he could do any of these things. And so it's not, uh, it, it's not a strategy to say, um, well, let's just, you know, we don't like nuclear war. Let's just like give him what he wants and walk away because that doesn't work with a man like him. Right. Bill, let me ask you this. Um, he certainly is as is, is, is dastardly and diabolical as he is. He's, he's one smart fellow. Um, and I've, I've read some of his speeches. Um, how, and you know, war can take many forms. It could be traditional warfare on the battlefield. It could be in cyberspace. It can be intellectual capital. It can be in financial markets, et cetera, et cetera. And he's spoken about the West and financial markets. Do you think, um, if I were him, you know, rather than throwing nukes at the West or whatever, I'd do everything I could to just, you know, make them impotent, mess them up financially. So talk a little bit about whether that's probably in his thinking, you know, be it what he's doing to the energy prices or what he's doing to trying to uh, de-dollarize the world economy, commodity prices, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess the question is, and I'm just laying it out, you can riff on it however you want. To what extent uh, is, is economic warfare probably figuring in his calculus? Well, so, I mean, so if you look at his situation, he, he, he's got a country with an economy the size of the state of New York. Um, he has a military budget, which is about $70 billion, which is equivalent to the UK military budget, except that 80 to 90% of his military budget um, gets stolen. So he's not a power player by any means. And so what does he do? He just looks at every possible point of leverage he has and tries to exploit it to the maximum possible advantage, 
no matter the pain to himself, if it causes his enemy pain. And so he stopped supplying gas to Europe. It's devastating for Europe because they, a lot of countries like Germany and Italy and so on have relied on Russian gas. But it's even more devastating to him because 25% of his entire financial revenue of his government comes from the sale of gas, and that's not coming anymore. You know, he um, stopped selling wheat because he wants food prices to go up. He's, he's now blowing up pipelines to, to send the message that, you know, Internet and, and all other pipelines could, could eventually be blown up. Uh, he's, of course, creating this inflation because he's hoping that this will lead to uh, populist and, and right-wing governments that come into place that will be more sympathetic to him in the future. And he's using whatever possible tool he has to the maximum possible advantage to cause as much pain and as much distress, even if it causes him 10 times as much pain, because he understands that we have much lower tolerance for pain than he does. In democracies, you know, we're constantly changing our leaders. Look, in Britain, we had a, we had a prime minister for seven weeks. It was also upsetting. Um, and so he's, I mean, this is working for him. You know, in America... Um, Kevin McCarthy, who's probably going to become the Speaker of the House, is is talking about cutting off uh, support for Ukraine. I mean, so Putin is just hoping that all this chaos that he's creating will create a, an environment where even if he loses the war militarily, which he is, he's losing the war militarily. He's lost nearly 70,000 troops and he can't restock them with young recruits because the young recruits are not trained. And, and he's really got nowhere to go in this whole military battlefield confrontation, which is, which is amazing and surprising. But he's hoping that he just, all he has to do is just hold on long enough and, and he'll end up with uh, a bunch of different leaders in de democratic countries who will either not be so hard on him or may even support him. So, Bill, one of the things, just make, turning the conversation a little bit to things financial, uh, as this is a financial room, um, I always like to try to, ask speaker you know from the standpoint of the listeners person at home in terms of what this means to them um sounds like you're suggesting we're in for some sort of protracted uh campaign here this is not going to go away anytime soon is that fair yeah i mean so russia doesn't have a, any kind of decisive military advantage to win this war and ukraine doesn't either i mean bo both sides have enough going for them so that they're Neither side, neither the other side's not going to win, and so this is going to carry on as awful as that is. And and Putin also doesn't have any worries about how it looks to go after civilians to bomb. You know, I mean, what, I mean, this the, his strategy right now is to to take uh, to bomb all power plants in Ukraine so that every Ukrainian freezes this winter. And what does that do? That creates another five million refugees. And what do those 5 million refugees do? It wears on the patience of Western Europe um, who have so far been supportive of Ukraine. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to drag on in all sorts of different ways. And he's, he's just using whatever tools he has at his, at his disposal. And he's very fortunate as a, as a dictator that he doesn't have to worry about public opinion because I'm sure it's not particularly great right now drafting people, drafting every man in the country is like looking for an exit right now. You, you can't be... A, I heard an interesting story the other night that a friend of mine, uh, 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 an American journalist, just came back from Moscow, and he told me we were there together back when I lived in Russia. And he, and he told me that that you go to the restaurants and there's no men in the restaurants anymore, <laughs> just women. 
because the men are too scared to um, be in the country or to be wow. out. Wow. Wow. So just staying with it, you mentioned that um, you know, if he bombs Ukrainian power plants, he'll be freezing uh, this winter. Uh, in similar vein, you think he's totally willing to let the, the, the Western Europe people just go, just turn the gas off and the heck with it. Since it's, 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 I mean, it sounds shocking through, through view through the lens of a Westerner, but you think it's quite possible, if not likely. He already has. The, 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 if you look at the chart of of how much gas is flowing to Europe, it's stopped. Right, but he, but yeah, yeah, but, but he's not going. He, he, he's not going to turn it back on. He's totally willing to just let them freeze freeze but but they're not going to freeze though because europe has built up its stockpile of gas through lng us and norwegian gas and so europe has got enough gas to to get through the winter and so i mean he he totally misplayed his hand so that that it was much better as a threat than a reality now the reality is sunk in yes it's going to cost you know a couple percentage points of gdp for for uh, germany and other countries but then they're going to find alternative sources and um, and when they find alternative sources, um, that's it. He's no longer going to be a supplier. It takes you know decades to build up these relationships, and 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 once once you've ruined them through lack of trust, you know it's it, how, how can the Germans ever turn the Russian gas back on again? Why would they ever do that? And uh, I mean, it, it doesn't. It's it, so all he all he has to do is carry on for the rest of the winter, and the Germans are going to say, okay, fine. You, with our unbelievable German ingenuity and efficiency, we will go find other gas. And that will become our gas, and that, that's how we will run our economy. It's terrific, Bill. So let's just take a, a breather here for one second. So we're, we're speaking with Bill Browder, uh, well-known author, humanitarian, um, head of the uh, Magnitsky Justice Campaign. I think I got the name right. Um, yeah. One thing Bill did mention to me, um, his, his, new, his new book is available uh, in Russian, um, and Bill, maybe you want just a word about that. You would explain to me people could download it and give it to any of their Russian-speaking uh, friends. It's, it, it, it's free. So so anybody can download it. If you go to www.billbrowder.com, um, you can download Freezing Order in Russian and in Ukrainian for free. We're not, we're not charging anything for it. And my hope is that, uh, that the Russian people will read this book because um, to the extent that they don't under, already know uh, that my book, it lays it out so clearly and so easily and so easy to read um, with evidence about what a criminal Putin is that, that they might, um, you know, they might have, have, uh, I mean, in fact, even if people don't like Putin, you're not going to like him even, you're going to dislike him even more when you read my book to understand what he's been up to and all the, all the criminal stuff that he's done. And so, yeah, if you have Russian friends out there, um, please uh, tell them, to download this book for free and read it and, and um, learn about Putin. And, and it's also uh, entertaining as well as educational. Right. Hey, Bill, are you, um, I know you live in London now. Are you, um, are you afraid for your life? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you don't do this stuff. You know, you, you give Putin the finger and you can't expect, you know, and, and the finger in a very material way, which is going after his money, which is what we did with the Magnitsky Act. And you can't expect him not to come back at you. And so they've been they, they've been trying to get me back to Russia to kill me for the last 13 years. With eight Interpol arrest warrants and extradition requests and all sorts of nastiness. It's pretty awful. 
right? So I presume you mentioned in the book on various occasions you do have uh, bodyguards or protection for your your family and yourself. Is that is, is that right? Yep. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, do you not just you're you're an American living in London? Um, from where you sit, and you know, America is a very insular place. Um, folks usually don't have a pretty good handle on what's going on elsewhere. Do you think um, the average American really understands, or, or, or more importantly, those in positions of power in the government, the uh, congressmen, etc.? Because you, I know you've had extensive dealings with them. Do you think the public and or our government fully understands what they're dealing with here? Well, I, I, it's interesting. I, I think members of Congress <clears throat> pretty much do, uh, and I've had I've had a lot of and and this, and, and up until very recently, there hasn't been much partisanship about this whole thing. I mean, it was a pretty well-established understanding that Putin is an evil criminal and that he needs to be contained. Interestingly, um, our government, successive governments, um, have been pretty bad about dealing with Russia. And I, I'm not sure exactly where that comes from, whether it's, um, I, I think it's sort of, you get these policy wonks in Washington who are political scientists studying Putin, and they read what he says, and um, and they just take it at face value, and so they think, well, you know, th- this guy doesn't didn't like NATO, and so maybe we need to negotiate about NATO and and all this kind of stuff. When, when it has nothing to do with that. This is like you need to be a criminologist, not a political scientist, to understand Putin. And and so I think that there's always there, there's always a bit of a sort of disconnect between, you know, what's really what what you really need to know and how people are interpreting it, and 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 everyone kind of wises up slowly you know it took a long time before anyone realized that you know if you want to hit putin hit the oligarchs and that we've done so now we've sanctioned some of the big ones but it took them a long time to figure this out and and they were like you know using sanctions against you know guys out of the phone book not not out of the people not against the people who had all the money so it's it's a slow learning curve and and eventually everyone gets up it but you know a lot of lives are lost in the meantime Right. Are we um, are there avenues the United States could pursue? I'm thinking now financial or otherwise trigger levers we could use that we really haven't used that could be more effective in uh, dealing with Russia. Um, Well, I mean, the the first thing we should do, and I know this. So the United States, as I mentioned, is not giving the Ukrainians the weapons that they need to win the war. And there's a whole they're holding back on a whole bunch of stuff. And so the, the obvious first thing to do is to like go down the list of what they've requested and give it to them so that um, uh, they can, we can get this thing over with. And then the second thing I would say is that, um, and, and this is something we really need to like up our game on, is we have this, we, we've done a pretty good job, the United States, UK, EU, with the sort of what I call rule of law countries of the world of all kind of locked arms and said, this is outrageous. You can't just go and take over a country and kill innocent people and we're going to sanction you. And then you've got a whole bunch of what they call non-aligned countries, the global South, what I call the non-rule of law countries, the United Arab Emirates, the Turkey, South Africa, that are all supporting Russia and allowing Russians to park their boats, their jets, and use their banking systems and so on. And I think there's a real easy way to totally isolate Russia, which is to get together with our our allies in this thing and go tell the United Arab Emirates, you know, totally cool if you want to, like, you know, 
harbor Russian oligarch villains in your Dubai. But um, if you do, then then we're just going to cut you off, and you you can either do business with the rest of the world or do business with us. And um, I, I think that they make a real quick you know when, when it comes to money, people make a pretty quick decision that like you know seventy percent of the world GDP you don't want to cut off for the sake of a country with like two percent of the world's GDP. Makes total sense. So with that, I'd like to uh, turn to the audience. I know we've just got a few more minutes. Um, Gnostic, my good friend, uh, good to see you. The floor is yours. Gnostic, do you have a question for Bill? This has been uh, speechlessly edifying, Bill. Um, I'm, I'm kind of left in agog at what you've basically gone over. I was in the camp that sort of said, you know, there's a somewhat insane but reasonable person, you know, in charge of Russia. It leaves me with a couple of questions. You know, up until your very last set of statements, um, I was in full full support of what you were saying and, and amazed. However, under the current circumstances, I live in Canada. <clears throat> I live under a government that decided to seize bank accounts uh, of people that it didn't like as protesters. And the banks, as a consequence of that, decided to seize more accounts for anybody that had it. 97 names were sent out and more were even seized. Uh, do you think that using banking procedures and financial procedures in light of something like that, where a democratic, theoretically democratic country, although I doubt it at the moment, uh, is willing to sit down and do that to its own citizens, do you think that it's reasonable to empower a country to sit down and do that to anyone, anywhere, uh, when they can turn those same instruments onto their own people when they don't like them? Well, I mean, what, what, you're, what you're talking about is, is a... Um... A question of rule of law in Canada, not a question of, of foreign policy towards sanctions evaders. Um, I, I think that uh, if if Canada is, um, you know, o- overstepping, it's the government is overstepping property rights and so on to seize assets. That's a you know that's an issue that should be, you know, addressed and dealt with. But it doesn't doesn't negate the. Um, uh, well, I mean, let's just look at this in, in, in broad terms. <laughs> if, um, you have an international emergency where a country is threatening nuclear war and you have a bunch of countries that are saying we want to try to contain you. And then if, a, 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 another collection of countries that are saying we don't want to um, we want to do it. We're, we're, we don't we don't respect that. And we're just going to allow this country to carry on doing what it's doing. I think that that that, that the, the threat of, of like extinction probably um brings us up to the level of, of uh, something that should be done. And if we need to fix our own domestic systems, that's a different, different question. Well, and then there I feel like England, uh, pre-World War II, uh, trying to find a peaceful solution when there was no peaceful solution. And my moral and ethical dilemma just sends me into a loop. Um, I, it's, it's questions that I think uh, you've raised phenomenally good questions and i thank you for that thanks for the question gnostic uh, by the way before we go on i just like to uh mention as well um it's been a while since we've uh passed the hat so to speak for uh world central kitchen our favorite uh charitable cause um you know chef andreas is doing god's work helping amongst others the people of the ukraine i've um put in the nest up the top the link to um, 
our the, our page for World Central Kitchen. We've raised over $220,000 so far. I gave it a rest the last few months, but I think now is a particularly uh, appropriate time to um, engage in trying to help others. Bill has been, uh, it's just extraordinary. I mean, you know, there are a lot of, Wall Street's never a, Never for Boy Scouts, we know that. Um, but you meet some people in your life that really do God's work, and um, I'm not trying to uh, blow smoke up Bill's backside, but Bill, I really salute you. Um, so many people are, are so singularly concerned with their own lining their own pockets, and you don't have to be doing this. And, and it's just a, a great danger to yourself, and it's really inspiring. I urge everyone to, to read Bill's books. Um, also, as Bill mentioned, um, you can download his, his books into Russian, give them it's for free and give them to those who, who need to read this bill is making a difference. And so, um, Bill, I can't thank you enough. Gnostic, do you have a follow-up, Gnostic? Uh, <clears throat> yes. As a matter of fact, while we were on in it, I've ordered several, both in Russian and in English to send it to, to different people. And thank you for your bravery, uh, Bill. It's, um, yeah, you've left me with a whole bunch of, of moral dilemmas and questions that, uh, and clarified a bunch of things, and I'm very grateful to you. Those books are already on their way to various Russian people and uh, several reporters and ambassadors. Thank, thank you. That's fantastic, Gnostic. Michael, um, the floor is yours. Michael, please unmute yourself. You have a question, I, Michael? I do. Thanks very much. Uh, Mr. Bratter, I, I've seen recently that you've been campaigning uh, in the Canadian Parliament um, on behalf of Vladimir uh, Karamurza, and I know you've been coordinating yep. with others to do the same in the EU. Um, I'm wondering, uh, what role do you think some of these political prisoners might play in an eventual transition in Russia? Um, and or if you're not optimistic about any transition happening anytime soon, wh what do you think you know is the likely outcome for somebody like your friend uh, Vladimir Karamurza? Well, so, so my my um, my, my the, the the most likely outcome to this whole thing is more of this whole thing and and just continued awfulness in Ukraine. But there is a uh, another scenario, which I, I wouldn't put as a high probability scenario, but I put it as a higher probability scenario than it had been before, which is that Putin has so so overstretched himself, so stepped over, so far over his skis so um overextended his his financial resources and his and people's tolerance that at some point the whole thing could break the whole the, the people could just say you know I, i'm i'm not scared of standing up to the government anymore because if i don't then i'm going to be sent out as cannon fodder in ukraine and I, I'm, I'm not sure if and when that's going to happen but it could happen i can easily see the you know, the, the um, risk reward of taking that view a lot different than it was before. And if people do, um, uh, you know, if there's, if there's a public uprising and a big enough public uprising where Putin loses his power as many other dictators and many other countries have over history, then, then there, and, and the system gets broken, not to the, not, not that like some other Putin like character just, you know, gets slotted in when he, he goes running to, North Korea for asylum or whatever, but uh, but if the system breaks completely, then then the Russian people will be looking for you know who's going to lead us out of this who's going to rebuild who's going to lead us out of this ugly mess that Putin has gotten us into, and then you have people like my friend Vladimir Karamurza who is uh, 
one of the true, brave, you know, decent, honorable people in Russia who stood up to Putin, who protested the war, who's now facing treason charges and 24 years in prison for standing up to the Putin regime. And, and the Russian people are going to look for who, you know, who, who, who was there making these statements, who made the personal sacrifices to do this. And, and he's one of them. And, and so there's a chance that someone like Vladimir and Alexei Navalny and, and um, Ilya Yashin and a bunch of other uh, members of the Russian opposition who are currently sitting in jail could be, could be the backbone of a, of a future government, one that's and not, not, non warlike and, you know, comfortable with the West and, and comfortable with democracy. And as I said, it's not a high probability scenario, but it's a scenario. And, and I just uh, hope and pray that that's the scenario that plays itself out. And in the meantime, what I was doing in Canada was trying to get uh, Magnitsky sanctions placed on the people who have imprisoned my friend Vladimir Karamorza um, for the one particular purpose, which is just a signal that he's important to us. And, and uh, you know, if anything happens to him, you know, this is this is someone that we will value greatly. And hopefully that will give him a little bit more, you know, longevity in, in captivity there. Thanks for the question, Michael. That was terrific. Uh, Bill, uh, a few more questions from the audience. I, I have one. Um, we're going to go to Carlo, Carlos in a minute. And by the way, those of you that are, have your hand raised that want to uh, ask a question, and if I don't know you, please DM me your question. Um, Carlos, I'm going to get to you in one second. But Bill, one of the questions that, that's been sent in to me, it's an excellent question. What do you make of um, the potential um, uh, alignment um, between um, Russia and China? Um, what do you think is going on between those two countries, between Xi and Putin? Um, you know, it's a very complicated relationship. But do you have any do you have any convictions or observations about the China Russia relationship? Well, it's it's not a relationship based on any type of the only shared ideology between Russia and China is both of them don't want the United States to succeed. And, and I think that when they declared the no limit friendship um, just before the Olympics, that was basically um, on the assumption that Putin was going to win in three days and everything was going to go swimmingly for Vladimir Putin. And, and it hasn't. And China is one of the biggest victims of this whole thing. What are the Chinese? Chinese China is a country full of people and not a lot of resources. <clears throat> they import an enormous amount of oil and gas. They import wheat, and as a result, Putin has um, even if they even if, and even if they get discounts on their oil and gas, is discounted off of a much higher um, price. So it's not like they're they're winning from this whole thing, you know. And and we're not seeing any Chinese companies like going in to fill the void. It's not like Alipay is filling in for. Visa and MasterCard, they're, they're just as eager to avoid sanctions as everybody else. Same thing with the Chinese mobile phone companies. And, uh, and so you end up in a situation where, uh, you know, the only shared interest they really have is sort of a, a, a mutual hatred of, of the United States and hatred of democracy. But it hasn't been, it hasn't turned out to be such a great thing for, for China, this war. And, and, uh, and it's not as if they're going to like dig deep into their pockets to support Russia. They'll, they'll do whatever is in the Chinese national interest, which doesn't appear to be in the Russian national interest right now. And so China is sort of playing, you know, I mean, the only, the only real benefit that Russia is getting from China right now is at the United Nations. I can't see any other, other place where, where this sort of no limits friendship has really turned out to be a no limits friendship. Got it. Now, do you have a follow up? 
Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I wasn't going to bring this up until uh, Carlos raised it, but Bill, do you see any parallels between what Xi's doing and what Putin did, especially in light of the latest Congress move and uh, what appears to be a swing back to Marxism realigned with the Chinese culture as they were quoted in the news, news release yesterday morning? Yeah, I mean, it's it's all very similar. This is, um, you know, dictator 101 type of stuff, you know, president for life, uh, you know, get rid of all your enemies, use anti-corruption laws to go after your enemies. Um, and and it's it's interesting because, you know, China really had this great thing going uh, economically when they were saying, we you know, let's just focus on business. And that seems to have changed in recent years and and. Now they're focused on all this non-economic stuff, and it's hard to see how how it's going to work, because China's China's goals were always to you know as long as as long as people were getting better off, they would support their dictatorship, but that's not happening anymore. And so the only way that you can there's only two ways that that dictators can deal with the situation where their people are starting to grumble. One is to start wars, as we saw what Putin did. And as a reason to think that China wouldn't do the same. And the second is to repress the domestic population. And I think you'll see a lot more repression in China. Not that there isn't a lot there already. And you'll see a lot more repression in Russia. Thanks. Uh, Carlos, the floor is yours. Please unmute yourself, Carlos. Yes, thank you. Uh, Bill, I think you're um, kind of advocating for what, current U.S. foreign policy is with Russia and maybe a little bit more, you know, as far as providing more aid to Ukraine. Um, just like I think over the weekend, uh, Macron, Macron, the prime minister of France, you know, was actually blaming the U.S. for, you know, the high energy prices. And it's not fair that they mark up our natural gas to them. Do you think that we could have a policy backfire on this Russian pipeline, Russian gas? Europe doesn't have a high tolerance of pain, and neither do Americans, as you have said. Now, we haven't felt it here, but Europe is starting to feel it, and I think they want resolution over Ukraine uh, pretty quick. So I just wanted to ask, do you think we need to have a U.S. Uh, policy rethink? Maybe our sanctions aren't helping and they're actually driving Saudi Arabia, other people to the BRICS and Europe thinking, you know, maybe we need to end this sooner than later. Thank you. But well, I think there's there's a huge um, chorus of appeasers out there. Macron is the leader of that chorus, and the Germans are uh, singing along. And the um, and and there and as as I said earlier, you know the the, the economic there's economic pain being felt in Europe. There's no question. Um, but the the real question is, you know, as Neville Chamberlain discovered. That you know what happens when you appease a dictator, you know does that, does that solve the problem? And so if these guys think that they're going to solve the problem by, by like, you know, giving Putin some, throwing him a bone like we did with Hitler with Sudetenland, 
you know, these guys are sorely mistaken. And, um, you know, uh, Putin is, is he, Ukraine is just one stop in a long road for him. And he, he wants to keep on pushing, keep on expanding, keep on attacking, because that's the only way that he stays in power. And so I'm, I'm not, um, I don't see how, uh, you know, appeasing and, and, and if, and, and if the idea is somehow our sanctions are responsible for higher energy prices, no, our sanctions aren't responsible. Putin made a unilateral decision to invade a foreign country. And he also turned off the gas and he also did, you know, created all sorts of uncertainty in, in financial markets. He also created uncertainty in the, and, and lack of supply of wheat to developing countries. We had nothing to do with that. The only thing that we're doing is trying to, um, in the, in the, in the least provocative way possible, trying to create some consequence for him to do that, which is sanctions. We don't want to go to war with him. And so if the argument is, we should appease him. We should not punish him, but we should allow him just to like uh, invade Ukraine unimpeded. I don't think that accomplishes any of our goals. And we'll just be spent in nor the Germans or anyone else's goals. We'll, everyone will just be spending a lot more money when we're actually directly at war with Putin. Hey, Bill, what, what, why do you think we're not giving um, the Ukraine um, the weapons it needs to win? I'm I'm a hundred percent sure that the guys in Washington are 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 like you know sort of debating the cornered rat scenario and saying, you know, he's, if, if we, if we push him in too far into a corner, then he'll use nukes. And therefore we just want him, you know, it's better for us to just allow this war to carry on where he doesn't win and they don't win. And we don't have to worry about nukes. I think that that's the, Got that's it. the logic. Got it. Got it. Uh, well, let's go to, I, uh, I think I've got, I've got time for one more question. Okay. One more question. I'm going to go to uh, Howard Carey, please. Howard, uh, please unmute yourself. Floor is yours. Howard. Can you hear me, Howard? I think the app's getting crazy on you. All right, let's go then to uh, Mark, Mike, Wyke out west. Mark Weichel, um, you, you, you've been waiting patiently. Mark, the floor is yours. Hi, Bill. Hi, George. Uh, thanks very much for doing this space. I've, I've read your book, Bill. I really appreciate you doing this. Um, Thank you. My question goes back to um, the question that George asked earlier about the relationship between Xi and Putin. Um, and the United States, from the United States perspective, I feel it's in their best interest to let this war continue without actively getting involved. And I know that China and Russia have had a long relationship of, of wars, um, and they, you know, they share a huge border. But as Russia fights this war in the Ukraine, and they start pulling their ethnic minorities from all over the place to fight these battles... I feel like internal strife in Russia is a real issue. And China has an incentive to get the natural resources that they lost in the 1860s to Russia. Is it possible that China may actually eventually make a move to get those territories that are rich in natural resources, oil and gas, and the Sea of Japan as opposed to going for Taiwan, which I feel like is a shiny ringing bell for everybody to look at. That's my question. Thanks very much. It's a good question. So if, if you, um, I, I remember um, like 20 years ago, I was invited um, to meet a guy named General Lebed. Uh, he was like the most nationalistic of all nationalistic Russian politicians. Um, 
and he was the the governor of of the Krasnoyarsk region of Russia. And somebody somebody said, well, we'll introduce you to him. You need to talk some sense into him because he might be the next president. He should know about economics. So I flew to Siberia. I sat down with this guy, and he was like, I've never seen such a like a scary character. And he then started to lecture me about China. And he said, on one side of the border, there are are um, uh, ten thousand people um, per square kilometer, and uh, uh, and all the natural resources. And on the other side, there's a million people per square kilometer and no natural resources. <laughs> and guess which side the Russians are on? And he said, you know, the Chinese are our biggest enemy, and and we have to be so careful because that this will eventually lead to a war. And so, and I never forgot that. And and um, uh, this General Lebed ended up. Um, dying in a in a suspicious helicopter crash but um putin is completely selling out his national interest in this war i mean by, by everything he's done by aligning himself with china against the western world is just the stupidest most ill thought through short-term you know personal strategy that had no no benefit to the russians because yeah the, the chinese they need them they need the oil and they need the gas and and there's a lot of it, and Russia has it, and, and it's very close by. And so I, I don't know about the Taiwan versus uh, Sakhalin Island or or whatever, but but I mean you know th- this is all stuff I think that will play out over decades, not in months or years. But but I think that this is really a a, a, a huge problem that that Putin has created by by getting close to the country that wants to gobble them up. Thanks for that. Hey, Bill, I want on behalf of everybody here, I want to thank you. This has just been phenomenal. Um, you've really opened our eyes. For those of us that haven't been on the front line that are sitting comfortably here in North America, it's really hard to relate to a lot of your stories. I urge everyone to go out and buy Bill's books. Even more importantly, as Bill mentioned, uh, they can be downloaded for free from his website and give they're in, in Russian give them to give them to those in Russia who need to know this story and bill you really are doing god's work and finally in bill's honor um, i urge everyone to please give generously to world central kitchen Um, i see we've had a few uh, contributors um, already today if you've gotten value uh, from this conversation i mean this is just priceless i I, you know we haven't passed the hat now in a few months and this is a fantastic uh, time to once again contribute to uh World Central Kitchen, and particularly helping the people of the Ukraine, helping people everywhere in Bill's honor. And so, Bill, I want to thank you. This has been phenomenal. I hope you'll consider uh, coming back again. We've all learned so much, and thank you for everything you're doing for humanity. This has just been this has just been terrific. So, thank you, Bill. Thank you, and thank you all, and and uh, God bless. God Take bless. Care. Take care, Bill. Okay, we'll, we'll, Bill, you're free to go. This missed. We're gonna keep. We're gonna keep going as as we normally do. Um, so, uh, Michael, I think you had a follow-up question and now that Bill's gone, maybe the, the questions were already answered, but Michael, did you, did you have a follow-up question, Michael? Please unmute yourself. Uh, sure. I mean, perhaps it may be to anybody in the space, uh, you know, Bill may have had unique insight, but, um, to the extent that there develops a considerable political stress in Russia or even a collapse, um, I'm, I'm wondering what economic indicators might be the first we would see, um, you know, hinting at that, whether it be oil production or tax revenue or a foreign currency reserve. Um, I don't know if anybody had any thoughts on that. 
it's a good question. Maybe someone in turn, when they come up, they'll uh, they'll be able to answer that question. So let's go to let's take some questions from folks who haven't spoken yet. It's a great question, Michael. Uh, let's go to uh, Alan's son, and then uh, Jeremy. Alan's son, please unmute yourself. Hi, Jules. Thank you so much. Give me the microphone. I'm so exciting. So I wonder, ask one question. So what do you think the next step for the market in the United States? Uh, how about the next trends or up and down? Thank you so much, George. You're asking about what? What about what about markets? Is that is that the question? Yeah, market yeah. trends. Thank you. Yeah. 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 So look, as you, as I always often quote that eminent philosopher Yogi Berra, um, making predictions is difficult, especially about the future. I guess what really strikes me listening to uh, Bill talk is, you know, it's easy to see these Wall Street stars. Oh, you know, if peace breaks out and this, that, and everything else. Sounds to me like I wouldn't hold my breath over that one. And, um, you know, I've been on a very bearish um, uh, tack all year. Had nothing to do with Russia. It was before Russia. Um, this, and this just adds another, adds more fuel to the fire. So if you're wondering about right tail risks, in other words, what could go right, doesn't sound like, Good news from Ukraine is going to be coming soon with theater near us. So um, I was particularly disheartened by what Bill had to say. All right, let's move on. Uh, let's go to uh, Dan Miner, and then we're going to Pieter. Dan Miner, floor is yours. Please unmute yourself, Dan. Dan, are you there? Please unmute yourself. Okay, if he's not there. Pieter, floor is yours. Thanks, George. Um, yeah, I came up just as Michael was asking his question. There's always a bit of a delay, so I don't know if he said I can speak to whatever he said, um, if you can summarize his question. Um, but the main point I just wanted to emphasize was today, you know, we've had uh, the leadership contest of the Conservative Party uh, finalized and Rishi Sunak come in as the as the premier, which is on one hand, it's good for the symbolism of what he represents but also because it illustrates the UK is veering away, hopefully, from this idea of populism for the time being, compared to Italy. Um, so from a market standpoint for your listeners and, and everything, uh, I think it's going to be positive. Um, the, the thing we don't know about is his uh, foreign policy, though. Um, and so I'm still uh, apprehensive, conscious about what he's going to do uh, for the markets for Britain vis-a-vis -vis the rest of Europe. Uh, his relationship with India is obviously going to be important for South Asian trade and, and engagement. Um, but also I'm curious to see what his response is to China's uh, volatility uh, after what we saw on Sunday and the weekend with the CCP conference. So uh, just curious if you have any thoughts on that um, and if I can add anything to what Michael said, if you know Michael can repeat his question. Maybe. Appreciate, appreciate that, Peter. I mean, look, the UK is not the cause of the world's problems. The UK is just symptom um perhaps a harbinger of things to come elsewhere uh the conflict between fiscal and monetary policy just the uk got there first and so it's quite instructive um central banks have been the great enablers for years upon years in funding uh, all the fiscal largesse uh, and now because of the uh, inflation um problem that's jumped out of the closet um they've gone from uh, qe to qt in many cases, they're rather slow to actually um, undertake QT. Uh, and so there are conflicts here between fiscal and monetary policies, and um, it's going to cause a lot of dislocations. I just think the UK will happen to get there first. 
um, as Dennis Gartman always says, there's never just one cockroach. Um, for sure, there are going to be others who are in a similar situation. So I'm watching with keen interest to see how the UK plays out. Thanks for that, Pietor. Let's go now to Dan. Dan, please unmute yourself. Yeah, sorry about that. I, um, I, w- I was got over to send you the, a direct message with my question and couldn't get back fast enough. Okay. Um, do, you, do you want to ask the question? Maybe some of the yeah, others no, in the no, panel. No, I, do, I, do, I do. I do. Go ahead. Go ahead. So several different people have brought up things without tying them together, without understanding they all come from the same source. Tucker Carlson and Fox News, Brexit, the Canadian protest that I believe is what the gentleman was referring to when he was talking about Canada seizing bank accounts. All of this is a two-decade Russian influence operation that has come dangerously close to working. Dan, Dan, I just want to be very careful here. We very carefully avoid getting into political discussions in this room. I mean, obviously, Russia, it's a political thing, but I don't want to get into a food fight um, over politics. I just want to be very careful. You're welcome to ask the question, but I don't want to get into make the partisan political discussions. Go ahead. How do we pry Putin out of the Western information space? How do we pry Putin out of the Western information space, meaning out of, out of, our, out of our media coverage? I mean, how do we cut off his very intentional influence channel, you know, money-based influence channels, like basically funding Le Pen's party in France? Yeah, I, I, and 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 it's, yeah, it's d- the d- most d- successful d- thing d- the Russians have done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan, I, 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 that's that's an interesting question. I, I really don't want to go there because. I could just feel it when to slide down the slippery slope and there are just certain things, certain ground rules for this, this room that I, I tend to adhere to. Like for instance, <laughs> every once in a while I'll talk about crypto and a food fight breaks out. I talk about Tesla, a food fight breaks out. I talk, if it gets into positive, a food fight breaks out because the, the people on one side are never going to agree with the people on the other side. So it's an interesting question that you raised, Dan, but um, uh, I, I just, I, I just don't want to go there if, if, if you don't mind. Um, Pietro, do you have a follow up? I just no. I was just going to speak very quickly to that. And Russia's my regional expertise. If you, um, yeah, if you, if you, I, I, I've heard you in other rooms. I appreciate your insights and your knowledge. I would just ask you to try to make it as non. Uh, of course, yeah, no, yeah, non, of course, non of incendiary course. as possible. That's all. <laughs> no, a hundred percent. It's an important question. It's a one for a different time. Um, what I would say is, you know, come to my spaces if you want to listen on on the geoeconomics. Um, you know, it's it's difficult. This is a this is a point. Uh, we have a, a lot of countries that have these very different power structures, uh, and you know the sanctions that we've imposed on Russia are are, are impactful, but they're not hundred percent because they're they're not um, you know um, basically ensuring that Russia is a completely autarkic or closed economy. So uh, unfortunately, there's not much we can do uh, to prevent him from having direct influence apart from continuing to sanction. Uh, specific financial flows, those who have uh, relationships with Putin, like Marilyn Le Pen or others, uh, and and continuing to uh, to uh, invest in information and uh, the strength of our own economic systems to to prevent them from being um, uh, you know destabilized by actors like the Kremlin or 
or, or, or such. Look at the, uh, uh, just as a small example, in Europe, you know, Hungary, Viktor Orban is a problem for the European markets. He's a problem for the European Union. And so the Europeans are using economic, you know, um, mechanisms to try and constrain uh, the Hungarian um, leadership. Uh, and it seems to be having, you know, inconsistent effects, but uh, it shows you the importance of using right. uh, these metrics to to, to uh, combat it. Uh, I, I, I urge everyone to follow Pietor. Um, if you want to know all, all things about things political, he, he's your guy. Um, so I, I enjoy listening to him and others. Do give him a follow. And thank you for coming to the room, Pietor. Uh, Patty, please unmute yourself. The floor is yours, Patty. Patty, do you have a question? Hi. Yes, uh, actually, um, uh, the previous speaker uh, did bring up a very good point. Um, I uh, am from a family that uh, is very well entrenched in the U.S. government and the military. And one of our um, biggest issues uh, is the Russian propaganda machine. Um, their psyops, they, they have divisions of psyops that are operating to uh, take down um, Western civilizations. And um, so the question of sitting there and, and uh, economic means, uh, you know, as um, uh, was just said, well, yeah, that's, that's one way. But um, there has to be uh, also um, other things that need to be done as well. And uh, it's fighting it with facts. Um, uh, you brought up the question of, uh, you know, the media. Um, yes, we're having a problem with media uh, being um, pulled in. And it's not just the right that is being pulled into this. The left gets pulled into it as well. That is their objective, is to divide and conquer. Um, so when you dismiss the other person, you were saying that, uh, you know, it was politically based. Well, this is uh, where their trigger is, is they're, they're going through uh, political parties and um, they are putting up propaganda that will trigger particular parties in one direction or the other. And it's not just left, it's not right, it's both. So when you look at this, you have to start um, like assessing where do you um, get your information. This is something that, that people right. need to start uh, doing their research on. Uh, if something pops up onto social media, for example, uh, it needs to be researched, it, you know, before you go ahead and you pass it along. Um, even, even the most, even the most uh, um, dependable resources, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, newspapers and things of that nature don't always get things right either. So um, you were correct in that, you know, we don't want to put a political slant on one side or the other, but we also need to go ahead and make sure that we are addressing it um, to the public, that 
not everything that you're reading in social media or on uh, these media stations, you know, uh, um, and I'm not going to mention names, but they're not always correct. So Patty, I, yeah, 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 Patty, I thank you for that. And, and thank you for being careful the way you worded it. Because again, the, the, these are very heated topics. L- let's come back to the financial side of things, if we may. I don't want this to go in a totally political uh, direction. There are plenty of rooms for that. This is a financial room. Um, so my takeaway from all this is, again, I, I learned a tremendous amount uh, from Bill. Um, you know, it's funny. You read For those of you who haven't read Red Notice, he's just another guy. He grew up in Chicago, just another guy, wasn't terribly motivated, went to Stanford, didn't know what he wanted to do. You read the book, could have been anybody. And he winds up, you know, being this character out of like, you know, Mission Impossible, Tom Clancy type of thing. It's incredible. So I, I can't recommend strongly enough reading his books. Also, he's made a lot of public appearances. You can see him he's on YouTube, he's the Aspen Institute and other places. He's on CNN quite a fair bit. And do get his books. And, and do please download his books. They're free, uh, the ones in Russian, and give them to a Russian-speaking uh, person who, who needs, needs, to, needs to read this. And finally, again, I implore you, if you got value out of this, and I, know I certainly did, please, please, please give generously to World Central Kitchen. The uh, link is up in the nest, and it's also in my Twitter feed. Um, we're all very fortunate here. We're trying to maintain, if not increase, our uh, our wealth, if not in real terms, at least in nominal terms. And there are people out there who are far less fortunate than we are, and we're very fortunate to have this community here. And I'm very proud of the fact that we've raised over $220,000 back in the spring. We've given a rest the last few months. Today, I'm re- we're re-engaging with Royal Central Kitchen. So I ask everyone to please give generously. There's a link up on the nest. You can use your credit card. Uh, maybe I should get another career as a Jerry Lewis type telethon guy. <laughs> Let's go to Gnostic, Michael, and Pietor. Gnostic. Uh, I was sitting here. I, I, by the way, George already downloaded the book and sent it off to some people and ordered it and will read it. And I do appreciate it. One of the things I picked up off, off him immensely was I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And holy crap, just he got involved and look at what happened. But I was sitting here looking at at Michael uh, and going, I think for some reason I get the impression that Michael could add some stuff to the conversation. And he just put up his hand. So I'll bow out to him at the moment. Yeah, we're going to Michael and then Pietro. Michael, the floor is yours. Uh, sure, since it sounded like you might be wrapping up. Um, I've been following the development. Uh, Michael, just to be warned, uh, I've been known sometimes these rooms go on for three, four, and five hours, but we're not going to do that today, so don't worry about it. Go ahead. Go sure. ahead. So I, I, uh, I pretty regularly will co-host with Piotr, uh, and so I'm used to rooms going three, four, five hours unexpectedly. Um, but what, I, are I, I, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? So I, I've been following events in Ukraine pretty closely. And given this is the financial space, um, there was a great thread put together by a gentleman named Tom Mitchell. Um, and it was uh, many, many accounts that are following events in Ukraine closely uh, that he would recommend. And I agree with most of his recommendations. He had actually reached out to me to put together a list of those covering the economic and financial aspects um, to include as one of his posts. So I've put that up in the, the nest or the resource um, link at the top of the space. 
if you want to go and check out some of the accounts that I follow uh, on these matters. Uh, and then if you're interested in, you know, the broader geopolitical aspects, uh, have a scroll through the thread because there are a lot of great accounts to follow in there. Thank you for that, Michael. Pietor, floor is yours. Thanks, George. Yeah, great space. Uh, I'll definitely be joining in the future. Um, yeah, I just really wanted to emphasize what Michael said. Um, you know, we do uh, run quite a few things on the geoeconomics. And if it's okay with you, I just uh, tweeted in the nest. Um, uh, I do have my own podcast. And one of the episodes that I had was on the Chinese Russian financial model. Uh, I've mentioned this in other financial spaces, but it was with a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And it's quite, it doesn't go into the politics as much. There's a bit of politics, of course, in there. The political economy is incredibly important these days. So if people want to listen to that, I, I recommend it. But my question for you, uh, given what's about to happen in the US in what, the next two weeks, uh, in the midterms, and we're seeing, you know, a potential rise of the red uh, again, um, because the economy is the most pressing thing on voters' minds now. So just curious for your take and anyone else on the on the panel's uh, thoughts on the uh, on the situation uh, as well. But thanks a lot uh, for the space. So what do I think is going to happen politically or what I think the reaction of what I assume is going to happen politically will be on the markets? Is that, I suspect? Yeah. So, well, I, I, as far as I can tell, you know, it's going to be uh, the Republicans taking one or if not both the houses. Uh, and so what do you think about that from the, um, from the market side, uh, given also that, you know, the, the, this, this support for Ukraine is, is still highly felt, but is wavering somewhat. So I'm just curious what you think. Yeah, I, I, I hate to say this, and I'm actually going to invite Gnostic to weigh on in this. I'll, I'll give my two cents, but Gnostic, you're next. So Ukraine, unfortunately, probably doesn't, isn't as much top of mind for folks as it should be. Um, we got a lot of, if, if it was the only real issue out there, it'd be one thing, but there's so many moving parts right now. What's going on with inflation, um, monetary policy, the oil price, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, obviously the oil price is somewhat related to Russia. I get it. But there are a lot of other problems out there in the world right now. And so it's just one of many, you know, if, if we didn't have these other things going on, I suspect there'd be more attention paid to it, but it, it's not the case right now. And so my two cents, it's worth what you pay for it, which is nothing. All things being equal, which they never are. Yeah, it's a positive from the market perspective. If there's a red landslide, I'm not talking politics. I'm just talking from a market perspective, but I don't know how short lived. I don't know how short lived that's going to be because there again, there are so many other problems out there, intractable problems, which neither side can really fix. But for instance, um, you know, I think on ESG, I think the markets have slowly starting to come around to realize what a problem it is, and if we backed off some of the insane policies we have towards um, towards energy in this country, that would be a positive. But it, but it's very complicated. And you know, what? I'm gonna, I want to go to Gnostic because he's he's usually pretty good on these things. Gnostic, do you want to go at it, please? Oh dear, I was trying to keep my mouth shut so much in some of these, so much, and now you open it up. Oh God, <clears throat> um, the the messes that are going on in politics are insane. Um, and the problem is everybody's looking at it as left versus right, Republican versus Democrat. And actually, there's a third group of people that just have plain common sense that are being almost completely ignored in the entire discussion, who are sitting down going, what the heck? Both sides are crazy. Um, Nanastic, you, you calling me out? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There you go. There you go. It's, it's, I mean, and most of the people in this room are, aren't on the extreme right or left. They're, they're trying to do what they feel is right. 
uh, and, and, you know, some of the left stuff is right. Some of the right stuff is right. Um, you know, which it, it's like, you know, you need a whole new third party uh, that, that throws away the crap on both sides and, and gets in the middle. And the problem is you've got all these three sides sitting down fighting uh, over what they're going to do. And, and on top of that, you've got a fourth, uh, almost want to say fifth column that involves the person who sat down and said, well, there's Russian Info involvement and all the rest of the stuff. But I would say that that's a minor issue with the internal process of editing that's been, that's gone on. I mean, that my character here, uh, if, if people don't know, I, this character started out as a, a political activist in the Canadian and, and American situation where I was putting out stuff and fully expected to get banned from Twitter uh, just for what I was doing and somehow threaded the needle and then found all of you. And all of a sudden this became my primary ID here. Um, and I'm kind of stuck with some of the history of it, including little markers that say, you know, warning when people go in and look at my stuff. But I mean, I, this is an exact example of what's going on. The, the third leg um, of the political realm right now, not right, not left, but but middle ground of reasonably intelligent people is essentially starting to wake up and go, what do I do? Um, I mean, and this whole space with Brower in it has essentially raised a, an entire issue for me sitting down and going, oh my God, I, I feel like I'm Britain and the prime minister trying to sit down and, and figure out what to do with Nazi Germany before the second world war. And there's appeasement on one side and doing something on the other side and forcefully sitting down and thumping them on the other side. And his argument to sit down and say, yes, supply Ukraine all of the armament that it needs. But you've got common sense people sitting down and saying, but if we do that and Putin decides to, I mean, what a conundrum to sit down and be in. And then financially here, we've got China and what just happened in China right now uh, going on internationally. And the isolationism that's going to take place in the United States and, and the reshoring and all the rest of the stuff just puts us right back into the pre-World War II environment of of U.S. isolationism, I'm not entirely sure that's wrong. So I, I'm as confused at the mess that's going on here as just about anyone else and trying to figure out where we're going to go. And my my results, the results of that are I see the market rise like it has. I sell uh, and go to cash. Right. And and I, I'm that, that's the only thing that seems to make sense for me at the moment. So when people say what's happening in the financial markets, I don't think I'm alone in this. And I see Monica smiling down below <laughs> going, yep. And, and I think everybody here is basically, I, I, I don't know. Thanks for that Gnostic. By the way, this is great room. Please. For those of you that haven't been in my rooms before, it's okay to mention politics only in the context of, it was really a financial room. I don't want this to generate into a political room. So please be respectful of that. Um, it's just there are other rooms for talking politics. Um, okay, so we're going to go to Chad and then Brad and then Patty. Chad, please unmute yourself. Hey, George. Thanks for putting this together. And I got two questions. I'll throw one at you and then just leave the other one open. And, uh, you know, again, put your caveat on it before I ask it that uh, anything I mentioned in politics is, is purely related to you know, financial outcomes and uh, risk events. So question for you, George, is just with uh, everything that's going on the geopolitical front and I guess some of these, whether it's Russia or not, because some of them are inextricably linked. Is there anything you're doing um, specifically for those events to, to hedge your portfolio other than being uh, just directionally short, I assume? 
Thanks for that. And uh, Chad, you and I have spoken before, and you kind of know my views, but for those who haven't heard me before, I mean, I, I've been very cautious, stroke negative the entire year. I still am. Um, the, the sort of elevator 30-second pitch has to do with the fact that um, I've said equities represent return for your risk. That is risk assets represent return for your risk simply because we've had suppressed cost of capital for the last umpteen years in the post-GFC environment. That's now normalizing owing to rising inflation. And so we're now getting price discovery on a lot of different asset prices, whereas before it was all about liquidity. And as central banks uh, go from very expansive to a more restrictive monetary policy, that's going to neg- continue to negatively impact asset prices. And so I've been negative on assets. I still am negative. Um, you know, counter turn rally is going to occur at any time. It's been a pretty good year so far. Again, this is not financial advice. Everyone has to do their own work. It's my own opinion. Uh, seldom right, never in doubt. <laughs> but uh, I just think, as Gnostic was pointing out, and I mentioned earlier, there's so many other things out there. This is the, the reasons to be cautious aren't just about what's going on in the Ukraine. It's going on with, with, with inflation, interest rates. You know, we all know, for instance, mortgage rates have gone crazy. It's going to cause a, a big decline in housing prices, in my view. That's just one example Real incomes are being pressured by rising inflation. A lot of companies are now saddled excess inventory as economies uh, slow down. Um, got problems with China. I mean, there's just so many problems out. I mean, there are always problems, always reasons to be cautious. I get that, but I, I just think that right now, right here, right now, it's a particularly uh, stressful time. And also keep in mind that equities are not cheap at all. I mean, it'd be one thing if the market had gone down a ton. He said, well, you know, the market's in seven times earnings or whatever. But stocks are still pretty richly valued from a historical perspective. Do not get anchored on where the prices were 12 months ago. you got to stand back and take a look uh, throughout uh, a bigger period of time. Stocks are not cheap. So I, I just think the, the upside is relatively limited. Of course, the market can rally. And yeah, if we get a Republican landslide, I'm not saying I'm pro-Republican or anti-Republican. I'm just saying the market would probably like that. All right. So yeah, if if we get a Republican victory, if people start to increasingly believe the Fed's not going to raise rates anymore, they're going to pause because they've done enough already. Yada yada yada. Plus, the market's gone down a lot. Yeah, of course the market can rally. You know, S and P's at where we are three thirty seven hundred. I mean, of course it can bounce. But the big, I'm not too good a trader. Uh, I try to get the big picture right, and we've done a pretty good job with that this year. So thanks for the question, Chad. I, I don't know. Chad, are you still, I mean, last time we spoke, you were a bit cautious as well. Are you, are you still uh, inclined that way, Chad? Oh, I'm, uh, I think we're just you know, maybe, maybe halfway through this <laughs> on the downside. I don't know. Um, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be, sound hyperbolic, but I think the ingredients are there for this to be as bad or potentially worse than the, GFC, but you know we'll see how that plays out. Um, you know, one thing I will tack on to this, and uh, my friend uh, David Wu, who, who left uh, Wall Street to do his own thing so he could be independent because he had a lot of pressure on him to express his views, which many of them end up being correct. Um, so he did a, a, uh, a video podcast. Hey, Chad, I think you broke up. We lost you, Chad. Chad? We can't hear you. Nasta, can you hear Chad or is it just me? No, I, I can't hear him either. I can't. Right. Maybe, maybe come come back. Chad, when you come back, we'll have you back. Let's go to Brad and then Patty with a follow-up. Brad, please unmute yourself. Hey, George. Thank, thank you for uh, hosting the space. <clears throat> I had a quick question. Um, 
towards the beginning of the war, I started to become very concerned about um, what was happening with the grain exports coming out of Ukraine. And uh, in particular, it became very obvious that um, there was going to be another set of casualties in this war, and it had to do with poorer nations and the effect that this conflict would have on poorer nations. And, um, you know, the more research I did, you know, there's, there's a lot of correlation between political upheaval um, and uh, food insecurity. Um, we started seeing a much stronger U.S. dollar. Um, global inflation, as you mentioned, obviously an issue. So it's like a perfect storm if you're a poorer nation and you're trying to feed your people. Oh, and by the way, maybe you're trying to refinance your sovereign debt. And so by around July, I started thinking of this in terms of, you know what, if this keeps going in this direction, by the end of the year, or maybe Q1 2023, we could see maybe not call it an emerging market debt crisis, but a frontier market debt crisis. Um, and as it turns out, I mean, today I just was reminded of this as I saw fund outflows um, from emerging markets, including China, um, as well as uh, some other statistics around, uh, it says that about a quarter of emerging market banks will breach capital requirements next year in a recession with high inflation. That's from the International Monetary Fund. So, um, and, and with China being in its own bad situation uh, financially and from an, an economy standpoint, and also being the largest bilateral creditor um, to other nations in the world, you don't see them coming to support a lot of these smaller nations anytime soon. So, so my, my question to you is, um, are there any, what I would call frontier markets, um, smaller nations that are not quite big enough to be emerging markets, but um, are there any frontier markets that you're concerned about? And could a, could a debt crisis spread? Um, well, do you think a debt crisis is impending in a lot of those markets? And do you think a debt crisis could spread from frontier markets and become more generalized to emerging markets? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And Brad, I, I, I think we should probably address that question more fully in another room, uh, just because emerging markets are, uh, it's a very heterogeneous group, and they've changed a lot over the last 10, 20 years. Um, some countries are still basket cases. You look at Turkey, you look at Argentina, and there are others. Uh, and some are actually in a rather better fiscal situation than they were previously. It's kind of curious that um, actually you know, normally in a big economic slowdown with the Fed tightening, um, in the past you'd expect to see emerging markets get totally shellacked. But if you look at emerging market currencies, some of them, like most notably Brazil, let's say, they've actually done better than developed currencies because um, probably because they're you know their fiscal balance is a little bit better, but more importantly they have a commodity mix. But you know China is a problem. Um, it's a command economy though. Russia we just talked about. I mean, <laughs> Enigma and wrapped inside a riddle. But no, it's it's fraught with uh, landmines. And yes, the rising dollar, rising oil prices, rising food prices, these hit emerging economies particularly hard because I think it was implied by your question, as you know, the, in the emerging market economies, a typical uh, uh, consumer individual spends a much higher proportion of their income on uh, food and housing, on necessities uh, and energy than is the case in developed economies. So yes, this is going to be a problem. 
but it's a very home, heterogeneous group. So I hesitate to give you a, a broad sweeping answer. I hope that helps, Brad. It's an excellent question. And in, 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 I hope you come back. We'll do that. I actually like that question a lot, uh, but it's for another room. We could talk forever about, you know, what's going on in, you know, Madagascar or uh, Sri Lanka, all these places where they've run out of energy. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a complete freaking disaster. So, but it, it's all over the place. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, maybe, maybe to refocus it for next time. Middle yeah. East, North Africa, Sub Saharan Africa. And Southeast Asia, I think would yeah, be a, no, a great. It, yeah, yeah and, and, and listen, I'm sure I've triggered some people here with my answer. It was a broad answer. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of that question because it's a very complex, very very complex question. Um, all right, let's go now to uh, Monroy Crod, followed by RFG, no, RGF. Monroy, please unmute yourself. Thank you. Uh, I would like to respond to Michael Bond's question, but uh, at first, can he rephrase it for me so I make sure I understand it correctly about the collapse of governments? Uh, Michael, do you want to rephrase the question? Uh, sure. When we were transitioning uh, to more general Q&A, I had um, said to the extent that political instability in Russia might be either driven by or be accompanied by economic failures uh, if anybody had opinion on what economic metrics might uh, show that stress first, you know, tax revenue, oil production, uh, uh, foreign uh, currency reserves, those sorts of things. Thank you, Michael. Uh, I guess in my opinion, it's none of the above. I think to the extent that there's any financial deterioration in any of those items, they'll just blame the West. It's, it's more about the propaganda more likely, I would probably look to see if there's a rise of a military leader or maybe some increase in transparency or some type of grassroots uh, effort of a revolution of some sort. For authoritarian government like Russia, I just don't see economics coming into play. Thank you. Thanks for that. Let's go now to uh, RGFNJ. Please unmute yourself. Hi, um, thanks for taking my call. Um, and thanks as well to you, both you and Bill. Um, I think particularly Fintwit needs to hear discussions like this because there's a whole lot of, you know, I, I, I see a whole lot of disinformation coming in um, that is Russia-based. Um, personal background, uh, I had a father who was imprisoned in um, an Eastern European prison for his beliefs, uh, beating the hell out of, um, it's amazing to me, um, listening to Bill, um, how little has changed and seeing, he, seeing what happens in Ukraine, how little has changed. Personally, I, I, it just, I, I want to steer clear of politics too, but to me, the thing that's really killing us right now, or is about to kill us in the United States in particular is the gutting of the center. I mean, basically you have probably Russian influence on the right wing, the left wing doesn't really know how to run businesses <laughs> and understand markets. And what we used to have in terms of a sensible center, which was formed from coalitions on both sides, um, that's really where that's our risk. And I don't see anybody talking in terms of the physical sanity that we need or, or things like that. And those those discussions usually came from the right and left coming together. Um, I don't even know what the right is for anymore. Um, the only thing per, uh, from a personal standpoint, I'll, I'll say one quick thing and leave it there. 
I can't vote for a party that's going to take us down the path being more towards Putin and more towards Russia because I'm scared to hell of what that means. So I'm left with voting for an inadequate other side. Um, in terms of markets, um, it's hard to see um, basically, um, yeah, well, in terms of Ukraine, I pray to God that in the lame duck Congress, if we get the results that are expected, that we get another year of authorized funding. But without, you know, let's say pressuring Germany to send tanks and stuff like that, it's also hard for me to see how that even resolves in the next year. And the Russians will wait you out. So um, in terms of markets, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we've done what we've done, but it's hard to see. Yes, the world could use Russian resources, but it's hard to see how any of that comes back online in the next, let's say, five years. Th thanks for your comments. Really appreciate it. Uh, Carlos, I think, uh, Carlos, I think you had a follow-up. Carlos, please unmute yourself. Yes, uh, this is just from the Washington Post just maybe three minutes ago. House Democrats push Biden to, uh, let me get that tweet, to rethink peace deals in Ukraine. So that's breaking news while you're holding the space, George. Appreciate that. Thank you, Carlos. Carpathia, my friend, uh, what's up? We haven't heard from you. Please unmute yourself, Carpathia. Oh, thank you, George. Um, I want to steer this back to something Bill said, and some people have alluded to it for us financial people. And um, at the end, I just want to make a comment. But the, um, I think the crux of the matter is, and Bill, Bill mentioned, people are alluding to it, um, the BRICS and the and weaponizing the dollar and weaponizing all the side effects. And uh, I think people want to, you know, press on that and continue down that path, but it does tremendous damage in the world. Nobody, nobody um, really wants that to happen, but it's been, it's, it's a tool. I get it. And Bill was like, okay, pressure trading partners. Well, that's why we're in, that's kind of why we're in this sort of uh, Gnostic was talking about it, you know, situation. I mean, in order to try to win, you got to go further down that, that path. And, you know, I think we're kind of seeing what happens. You know, you got MBS and you've got, we've got the realities of our balance sheet and we have constraints. And okay, we're gonna what are we gonna take the Fed funds to? We're gonna crush the housing. We're gonna crush the economy. And I think people are advocating that. I think it's good for an open discussion. I think that's what I'm focusing on. You know, a lot of this is important, but I'm watching, you know, the dollar and I'm watching the prices of the commodities that are priced in the dollars and what it's doing you know, in the world. And right now we're still in this very dangerous setup and it hasn't changed yet. So that's my, I would like to turn the discussion back to what are, what are the horrible word? What are our trigger points as investors? I know what I'm looking at. What are other people looking at? That's going to say, okay, this phase is, turning to a different tactic. I'm looking at the Dixie 
and the dollar index and what I'm going to do. And my comment is there seems to be, and we got to stay out of it, there seems to be a little bit of a bent and it's very dangerous and we need to put a stop to it. And Patty said, there seems to be a bent and you're falling into a trap where your political opponent is deemed to be the friend of Putin. That needs to stop in the whole country. And anyway, you know, God bless this room. God bless you, George. And I'd like to hear other people's thoughts about what do you watch? What are your trigger points to make decisions? Thanks. Yeah, sir, sir, Kirkpatrick, my friend, you, 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 you and I, uh, we, we were in touch offline. Um, I'm still really watching the bond market. Uh, that's for me. And um, the problem really is it's not the anomaly is not where bond yields are now. The anomaly is where interest rates and bond yields were previously. I've used this analogy before. It's imagine keeping a beach ball beneath the surface of the water for an extended period of time, and then you release it and it floats up to the surface. Well, that's interest rates. That's the cost of money. And we kept that beach ball below the surface of the water for, I don't know, decade, whatever. Um, you know, we started monkeying around with markets going back to the time of Greenspan, then to Bernanke, then Yellen, then Powell. I probably missed somebody in there. Um, and, but it just gets worse and worse and worse. And we've distorted prices to the point where there's no information content in prices. I mean, listen, capitalism is full of problems, but one of the features is that prices are used to allocate resources. And so when you distort prices, you got a problem. That's what we've done. And now the system's trying to normalize. And I don't really think there's any good way to get around this. Um, that, you know, whether you're talking about crazy tech stocks going to insane multiples or absurd buyout valuations for private equity or unicorns or cap rates on real estate, it's all the same thing. Baseball cards. Prices got pushed to insane levels because there was too much money around. And now that tire liquidity is going out and there's nothing really, I mean, we can maybe amortize the pain, stretch it out. But what I come back to is that certainly, if not in nominal terms, certainly in real terms, that wealth is going to get destroyed. The cost of preserving that wealth nominally is going to be much higher inflation. And so um, it, to me, it's, you know, we, we have the everything bubble. It's not too different from, Again, it's easier to see perhaps with the passage of time, but you know, if you look at, um, say, tech stocks, the NASDAQ bubble in 2000, they reached insanely uh, high levels, and um, it didn't tell you that prices have to go down in a straight line. Valuation is never a good tool for timing, but it does tell you that over any extended period of time, the returns are going to be poor. And I'm sorry to say, to me, that's what markets look like. So short-term triggers, yeah, I'm with you, Carpathia. You know, dollar, obviously, up, down bond market up down these are little things but the bigger picture you know zoom out, zoom out as our crypto friends would say is uh not particularly positive in my humble opinion um let's move on i want to go to michael pietor and then patty michael you have to follow up michael please unmute yourself michael uh, yep um so i like to try to bring resources to spaces and inspired by your brief back and forth there with brad uh, about emerging markets and in the context of, you know, the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, I, I wanted to highlight uh, the Ukrainian grain deal, and it has 27 days left in it. And it, indications coming out from talks now are not particularly positive that Russia wants to extend that. 
Um, and, you know, to the extent that you were talking about food price inflation in some of these emerging markets, potentially contributing to instability and that having much greater, you know, economic ramifications, I, I would suggest that people keep their eye on this. It may sound niche, but it affects, you know, so much of the fundamentals. Uh, and to that end, uh, there's an associate of mine uh, who is putting together a daily update on the exports and the status of negotiation. And so I've put that report in the nest. So that is updated daily um, for those who might want to follow it in closer detail. Um, I, I think it's a great resource because um, if, if this isn't worked out, you know, it's not just that Ukraine is the marginal supplier of grain at the moment. It's that in order to induce Russia to sign on to this deal, the U.S. made it clear that their sanctions did not apply to Russian fertilizer and Russian, you know, other agricultural products. Now, I, I don't think that for political reasons, the U.S. would sanction Russian agricultural export, but they certainly might not, you know, go out of their way to encourage U.S. financial entities to, you know, do these transactions because those entities were resisting out of concern that they couldn't, um, you know, do all the anti-money laundering checks necessary to work with Russian producers. So that could become a problem if Russia says, okay, Ukraine can't export grain. The U.S. might say, well, then in that case, we're not going to, you know, um, really be batting, going to bat for you either. And there might be sort of an unintentional thickening of, of the red tape uh, that might lead to more problems exporting Russian product as well. Thank you for that. Uh, Peter, did you follow up? Yeah, thanks, George. Um, no, just um, to what's been said, you know, I speak with a plummy British accent, but I do actually live in D.C. Uh, and the time I've been here, you know, this erosion of the right uh, in D.C. is is definitely problematic to what the previous speaker said. And I think uh, to the uh, to the idea of a peace deal, you know, depending upon how the midterms go, we could actually see momentum for that grow significantly, which would be uh for some people, not good, but for others, you know, calming of the economics, uh, financial system, more positive. Um, to that, someone mentioned the BRICS as well. Uh, the guest that I had in one of my episodes that I mentioned before, uh, she actually wrote a report on whether the BRICS can de-dollarize the global financial system. Um, so I've linked that in the nest as well, if people are interested here. She's, a, as I say, she's a the political economy fellow for uh, Council of Relations, which is a respected uh, sort of academic think tank not just on politics but on sort of economics as well uh in new york um so if you want to check that out i, I recommend it's a good read um and much more on the finance than just the sort of economy or uh, politics uh, and the last thing just on the bricks um and sort of it goes back to brad's point i wouldn't overemphasize the bricks as the sort of core component or sort of the alternative financial system uh they've been blown out of proportion you know south africa brazil and russia have not really reached their uh, the the aspirations that people thought they would um uh so i wouldn't overblow them they're, they're it was more of an academic term that was used in in the early um early 2000s um for to describe potential emes but the uh the emes the frontier economies that i am a bit concerned about destabilization wise are sort of vietnam uh the south asian economies given the disproportionate amount of influence china has in the region uh, and with their sort of, you know, aspirations over Taiwan and, and generally internal issues, uh, I look at those countries and their, you know, reliance and trade with China uh, as areas that, you know, are important for global supply chains, but also just therefore the impact it could have on the um, on the on the stability uh, of the region and therefore the global economy. But thanks, that's all.
Thanks, Pietro. All right, we're going to go to Patty. Uh, let's keep it brief, Patty, because I want to close the room. You have a quick follow-up or question, Patty? The floor is yours, Patty. Uh, thank you, George. Um, actually, I uh, I wanted to ask. Um, we've got a room of some, you know, pretty bright people here. Um, I know that, uh, you know, when the rumors uh, were, you know, flying in the press, you know, about, uh, you know, the interest rates going up, you know, that the Fed was going to raise it. Um, many people started, you know, like, uh-oh, you know. So I am wondering, um, you know, that we've seen, you know, the market go, uh, you know, the stock market going up a bit. And, um, you know, that was on the fact that, you know, the rumors are going again about the fact that, you know, they believe that, you know, Republicans are going to take back over. Um, now, how much of this is, in your opinion, is the tail wagging the dog. Um, I mean, because I, I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm a registered independent who was a, a, I mean, like a full on Republican. But after seeing so much that went on, I went independent. And I'm not trying to be political here. The reason why I say that, what, that I went independent is because I saw nothing there in either party anymore that really um, worked in a partisan way because neither party is right. Um, neither is wrong, you know, in certain circumstances, but neither are right. They're not working well together. Um, so I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this as, is this possibly because the representation, you know, that you're seeing, you know, in, in the news and everything like this, these, these polls. Hey, hey, hey Patty, pa Patty, I'm getting tired and I'm hungry. I haven't had lunch. Can you just, uh, okay, let me, let me just go to the, to the punch. Yeah, can you just, get, just bring it to, to the just, punch? I mean, yeah, how, yeah, yeah. how many of us actually participate in these polls? Yeah. So, so Patty, I'm sorry. That's really getting into the realm of policy. I, I just don't want to go there. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I'm asking... With with the with when you're sitting here and you're talking about markets, when you're talking about uh, you know the markets, it's usually swayed by news. Am I correct? Yeah, Patty, Patty, I, I'm happy to talk about the impact of polls on markets or the impact of an election on markets. I don't want to get into particulars of politics. I'm just sorry. I'm just not going to go there. I'm, I'm just... not getting into particulars. That's oh, okay. Okay. So, so, so Patty, Patty, let's keep it brief. Okay? I'm asking. No, no, Patty, Patty, question, pa pa Patty, was, Patty, what is the question, please? I asked the question, how much of this, uh, the, the markets and et cetera, and is being swayed by what we are seeing in the news? Okay, well, right, well, to answer to answer your question right here, right now, what's been pushing the markets around is really not politics. What caused the market to blip up on Friday had nothing to do with politics. It's commonly thought by those of us who are in the weeds on this stuff had more to do with the idea that the Fed might possibly pause on their interest rate increases. Um, this other discussion that we're getting into about politics has really not been top of mind for markets of late. It may, it probably will will start to become as we get close to the election. But it's not really relevant or, 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 or high on the list of what's relevant in terms of what's been going on the last few weeks. So that's how I would answer the question. 
Okay, so with that, um, this has been a great room. Um, it's been over two hours. Gnostic, um, as, as is customary, I'm going to leave it to you to have the last, last word. Gnostic? Oh, I hate that one. George, you summarized my sputtering <clears throat> example of what I was trying to say really well uh, in that summary of you know where the markets are and how this stuff is doing, and I really appreciate that. And I do appreciate this, spray, this space. Bill has given me a moral conundrum to sit down and work through for the next few days, and I'll read his book, and thank you for the space greatly. Much appreciated. And again, I'd ask everyone to please consider giving generously to World Central Kitchen. You know, we've done maybe 100 of these spaces. We do them for no uh, personal gain. Um, but these spaces are really extraordinary, the caliber of guests that we have in here. George. Sorry. Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with trade the market you have, not the one you want. Yeah, no, always, 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 always wise advice from you, Carpathia. So, at any rate, um, I would really uh, implore everyone, ask everyone, beg everyone to please give generously to World Central Kitchen. Um, you know, I do this for no personal financial gain, um, but there are people out there who are in a world of hurt who need need our help. We've raised uh, uh, two hundred twenty thousand dollars. We're two hundred twenty thousand dollars back in the spring, and we're kicking off another fundraising effort here today. So. Um, you know, if you can give ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, doesn't matter. We've had gifts as much as fifty thousand dollars. Everyone gives according to the level of their uh, resources. So, um, with that, I want to thank all of you: Gnostic, Carpathia, Michael, Pietor, RG, RG, FNJ, Bill Browder. You're not here anymore. Everyone, this has been a great room. Uh, our next room is going to be on Thursday with Eric Basmagian, really sharp uh, economist talk about what's trying to make sense of what's going on in this insane world we live in. So stay safe, everyone, and I'll see you guys on Thursday. Take care. Bye-bye.